to use the same method of marginalism to find what we are going to call marginal time preference. And this is a phrase which Mises never used, not even by accident, because he was quite sure that uh, his approach, originary interest, and the uh, taking what I would call averaging would give you the marginal preference. So we can assume without much uh, more ado that there is such a thing as time preference. We don't have to uh, refine the idea, and, uh, give reference to marginalism. That's what Mises did, but I think no, it's necessary to say the marginal, the time preference of whom? And the answer is the time preference of the marginal saver. But in practice, the marginal saver is going to be a bondholder. Wasn't always that way, because we just mentioned a previous session that. Uh, during the uh, Middle Ages, even, even earlier in pagan times, but Middle Ages, early Renaissance, uh, just before uh, the, the uh, Protestant uh, religion started to take hold on uh, people's thinking in Europe, there was a proscription against lending and borrowing virtually. Well, actually prescription was against interest, but nobody would uh, lend uh, without some consideration, some incentive. But the point is that it had to be a free bond market. Marketable bonds, that's, you see, this is something important. You have to say marketable bonds because a bond, you say in London, a handshake, blah, 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 is a bond. Yeah, but it may not be marketable and a large part of the US that is non-marketable. But we are definitely concentrating on marketable debt, on marketable bonds. So this was made possible by this movement started with the, uh, um, the uh, spread of the Protestant religion, especially John Calvin. And uh, it culminated in uh, free bond market. And it grew, and it grew. And it reached the point that practically 95% of all lending and borrowing is channeled through the marketable bond market. And in that situation, uh, we can see perfectly how the method of marginals works. Because we rank people according to their uh, 
time preference, which is exp can be expressed with a number. And the number is that particular interest rate, which they still find acceptable, but anything lower than that, they will find unacceptable and rejected. So if they are bondholders, they will sell their bond at the moment, the interest rate drops below their time preference rate. So we have ranked people, and again we look at the cutoff point, and that's the marginal subject, and the marginal subject is, uh, or could be called the marginal bondholder. He's the one who is going to sell his bond once the interest rate is pushed below his marginal uh, time preference rate. And uh, this is something which has teeth. It has golden teeth. And it bites. It hurts the banks and it hurts the government too under the gold standard. If the marginal bondholder exercises his right and privilege and sells the bond and keep the proceeds in the gold coin of the realm. It's, he's not going to accept gold certificates. It's got to be the gold coin. Mm -hmm. If he accepted uh, the gold certificate, in the US they called it the yellow back, as opposed to the greenback, the yellowback gold certificate of treasury promised to pay bearer on demand uh, gold coin, usually the $20 gold eagle coin. And if he, if the marginal bondholder accepted the gold uh, certificate, as Mises suggested that he would, then he would act counterproductive to his interest because he would give up the bond which still paid an interest, however low, but it was a positive interest, and exchanged it with uh, uh, a piece of paper, the yellow back, which didn't, which paid zero interest. So that would be like jumping from the frying pan into the fire. So the, uh, using his reason, the marginal bondholder would not consider anything but gold, and he would keep his savings in gold. And if the banks once more allowed the rate of interest to come back and reach his uh, uh, the level of his uh, marginal time preference, then he would buy back the gold bond. And this meant that he would make a profit. He sold, he sold the gold bond high, and now he buys it back low. So the difference is his profits. And this profit, which the marginal bondholder can make, is the guarantee 
that the system is going to work. So again, what I'm emphasizing here is the ranking and the marginal subject. So same idea, you see, we are looking for a generalized method, which is applicable in very, very different situations. Now, I just wonder how we are with time. It's uh, 25 more minutes. Yeah, so there's still more time. I, I don't mind if we have a discussion during this period rather than in the afternoon. So if you want to ask questions when I finish, I will welcome your, your questions. Now, the uh, concept of marginal utility <coughs> was the first in this uh, various applications and a very important application it is because it gave rise to the concept of marketability, Menger's original idea. And uh, we have another lecture coming up which is devoted entirely to this but I want to emphasize right here that this is important because it leads to the idea of the most marketable commodity. And uh, as you know, we are going to refine that and talk about marketability in the small, marketability in the large. But for us, the important thing is that there will be a most marketable good. You ask me what my definition of money would be. And my answer was, well, it's simply the most marketable good. So that assumes this uh, method of marginalism, introducing the concept of marginal utility. Through it, we uh, talk about the uh, marketability of a good which we measure as the through the spread. The spread is the difference between uh, the uh, the uh, uh, the bid and offer. Yes, the price yes. of which. Yes. So, uh, which is the higher? The, the offer. The offer is the higher, and we subtract. Uh, the bid. bid. That's the bid-ask spread. And that is a function of quantity. Depends. For lower quantity, it could be larger. larger yeah. And smaller quantity could be... No, the other way. Around. Sorry. <laughs> well, you, you have... That's the, right. the, the, the range, don't you? Yeah, you, <laughs> the spread. Okay. Yeah. Let's, let's draw a diagram. So, uh, yeah. two curves, one for the bid and the other for the offer. Bid, uh, sorry, asked price and offer 
offer price uh, are the same. Uh, in Britain, apparently, they prefer the offer. Uh, in the United States, the ask price. So, where is the spread? Spread. The spread is the difference between the two. So, yes, so this is quantity. Is Sorry, I didn't put here. Quantity and exchange value or price. So, okay. Now, uh, you were right because as <coughs> we, well, we start at, at that point. Okay. Somewhere there. Yeah. Okay. So there is the spread, just uh, draw the spread. And keep moving it to the right, you will see that it is increasing. Now this is uh, very easy to understand. How would you explain why this happens? Why is the spread widening uh, when uh, a greater quantity is exchanged? Shall I? Yeah. I mean, you're, you're, uh, you're, you're dipping into the pool of what's available at this end of the, uh, at this end of the, the curve. And, and you're and dealing you in unmarketable. Sell, you sell, you take a risk yeah. because you have to replenish yeah. your inventory. I mean, you are a tradesman. You are not sitting a pile just for the sake of sitting, you are making a market. So if somebody, a very unusually large order comes in, you have to think, can I fill it at the usual spread? And say so, no, because I, I'm not 100% sure I can replenish my inventory. So he will quote, because of this added risk, he will quote a higher spread. <clears throat> yeah, we are talking about market to boot. Uh, this this uh, variation of the spread uh, describes the uh, uh, concept of marketability. If we want to compare one commodities call it A, with another commodity call it B, and want to decide which is more marketable than the other. Is it A which is more marketable than B, or vice versa? The answer is going to be, you look at the spread, and both spreads will increase. And the commodity which is more marketable than the other will have which spread? The spread which increases less, more slowly than the other. Now, is, is that clear or does it need, does it call for more explanation? Louis, could you, somebody says, oh, well, I don't quite understand. How would you make it more uh, understandable? How would I? Um, 
I guess the, 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 the community of interested uh, buyers and sellers is abundant and therefore um, the meeting point uh -huh. between the two collective uh -huh. uh, is, is, uh, is close as opposed to being far. Uh, well, Marketability is an idea how easy it is or how can you do the exchange with as little loss as possible. Now a wider spread always implies a possibility of a greater loss than a smaller. So the same way if the spread increasing more slowly than another for another Commodity. This means the losses involved in the exchange will be smaller. And that is the same as idea as marketability. Right? Less, less unknown. Less uncertainty. Less uncertainty, but more concretely, well, uncertainty is abstract, but loss is very, very concrete. Okay? So, the, uh, uh, the uh, effort to get away with the least possible loss implies greater marketability. And ultimately, of course, there will be a top guy, top gun, that's the most marketable good which is going to be money. Today. I would just suggest that even the optimum point would be higher to begin with. So if you turn around with the best quantity of silver and you buy and sell, the premium is going to hurt more than gold. So gold is smaller spread to start with and it also is less. I mean, if you buy a new car and you turn around and turn and sell it immediately, you took 20% loss. You are going to lose. There's so, loss involved. So there's a loss there, but it's minimum and it grows the least also. All right. So uh, the, uh, um, this is again the uh, marginal utility which blossoms into this theory of marketability. It's pure manger, 100% uh, manger, very beautiful idea and we should uh, keep it in mind. And uh, now I did promise something and uh, I'm not trying to remember. What that I will point out something. Well, it will come back. So, uh, so it so happened that gold, uh, after a long, long evolution, taking probably thousands of years, and not just hundreds, but thousands, because it goes way back, way before writing was invented. No written records existed how this started. But it was a snowballing effect. Marketability of gold grew and grew and grew. So it's the experience, not just those of us who are still living, but also those who have 
deceased, dead people, because their experience was that the most marketable good is going to give you that superb confidence that it will keep its value. So they would rather choose gold than say platinum if it had been invented already because the amount of gold is so much greater above ground than the amount of platinum. So this has been through thick and thin the, the gold and it kept increasing and that reflects that supreme confidence and the gold uh, came out on the top okay now uh, I, I uh, make a reference here to Adam Smith who is really a hero for us not so much for the mainstream Austrians. They don't like Adam Smith. They look at him as a poor, as you would look at a poor relative. I mean, you have to admit that he's a relative, but you are not too happy when they remind you that you have this relative. And Adam Smith, uh, basically because of the uh, he fathered the real Bill's doctrine, and, uh, and that's an unforgettable sin. But that's another subject. We are talking about a mistake of Adam Smith. He's our hero, no question about that, but he did make that mistake. He adopted the labor theory of value, which I just explained that a certain product has value which is proportional to the amount of labor which goes into its production. And that was a mistake. Well, of course, he just summarized what people have, uh, and, and these are deep thinkers now, uh, people have thought before him. And since antiquity, that was uh, uncontroversial. That, the value of something is proportional to the amount of labor which goes into its production. Nothing could be uh, more obvious than that, they said. And then, of course, the counterexamples cropped up, and uh, it was Menger who pointed out that this is completely wrong, and you have to uh, define value as the marginal utility. And uh, too bad because uh, Karl Marx, when he was sitting in the uh, uh, British Museum Library and uh, looking at the literature, all the books, including Adam Smith, he hit on this idea labor theory of value, wonderful, he said, and he developed a theory of exploitation, Karl Marx, in, in the 19th century, the first part, I think. And uh, this uh, theory of exploitation said that the owners of the means of production expropriate 
the surplus value which justly would belong to labor because labor creates value <coughs> but by virtue of ownership of the means of production the owners of capital just expropriate the surplus value steal it in plain English and uh, this is unjust and we've got to have a revolution and proletariat would have to take over and make a clean sweep, expropriate the expropriators and uh, nationalize all uh, means of production and uh, the great uh, the new brave world will come and everybody will be happy ever after. Well that was pure theory and uh, of course uh, Karl Marx was free to publish his uh, uh, great book on capital, Das Kapital, and then the Communist Manifesto and the others. Uh, but it was still theory. And then comes a man uh, whose uh, nom de guerre, the uh, pseudonym, or, was Lenin, of course. And he was a man of action. He was not a man of theory so much, but he wanted to put the ideas of Marx into practice. And he did. He was instrumental in uh, doing that. Uh, they, call, they called it the revolution, but it was really just a, a putsch. The German word putsch, what's the English equivalent? Coup d'etat. Yeah. What's the French word? Yeah. <laughs> that's the English word. Coup d'etat. Yeah, uh, to taking over power, overthrowing the Tsar, and his, oh no, that, well there were stages, but that's not the interesting point is, then Lenin was free to put his ideas into practice, and it cost literally hundreds of millions of lives to correct that mistake, and it took almost 75 years, the life span of the Soviet Union just fell short, a few months short of 75, didn't reach the 75, but it was more than 74 uh, when the Soviet Union collapsed. And that was an incredible thing because the Soviet Union, well, nobody, not even the CIA, Expected. Oh, sorry. The uh, Collapse of the Soviet Union was not expected. It was not. The Soviet Union looked uh, all 
invincible. The, uh, had the, all the weaponry, all the machinery, had the satellites, had the rockets, everything. And yet it did collapse. And all those people died, not just during the revolution, but afterwards. Part of it was in the gulag, and the labor camps, and so on. And the various uh, follow-up wars, including the Korean and the Vietnam War, and etc., etc. Uh, hundreds of millions of people died, and they died for nothing. Because it was all a mistaken idea. Mistaken idea because of the theory of labor theory of value. All, everything was staked on that theory by Marx, and then Lenin put it in practice and so on. Now, ladies and gentlemen, I'm suggesting it to you that today something very, very sinister is happening, which is very, very uh, similar and reminds me of, of that historic mistake which is that uh, the economists today, and I mentioned two names, Keynes and Friedman, what they did, uh, in spite of all their antagonism, which could have been genuine, could have been pretended, I don't know and I don't care, but in one thing they did agree, and the thing they agreed Keynes and Friedman, was that the choice of gold as money is irrelevant. Gold is not a natural uh, mat raw material out of which you can fashion the measuring rod with which you measure value. It's not. And then come the Lenins of today, the Bernankes, the Greenspans, and the rest of them, the central bankers, who put that theory into practice and force their uh, rotten ideas on the rest of the people of the world. And I'm asking you, how many hundreds of millions of people will have to die by the way, when I said Lenin, following Lenin, uh, hundreds of million people died. I haven't uh, mentioned specifically, but just think of those who died of starvation. The peasants in the Ukraine and elsewhere in the Soviet Union were forced into these collective, the kolkhoz system. And they were very prosperous before, and they were deprived of their farms, and uh, then they died of starvation. You know, not everybody died because of the firing squad. So many did, and so many died in the trenches, in the wars, and so on. But there are also innocent people, uh, women and children, uh, who died of starvation. And the same thing is going to happen. And who is responsible for that? The new Lenins, the Bernankis, these are revolutionaries. They overthrew the constitution of the United States the same way as Lenin 
overthrew the Tsarist government. And as a consequence, they could grab the power, unlimited power, because the power to print money is an unlimited power. And if you uh, think of it, you will realize that the uh, important thing about the exper experiment of the United States, if I may call it that, it's much more than just an experiment, uh, very sad that eventually turned out to be, because it's not democracy, but it's limited government. That's the idea which uh, the creation of the United States uh, brought into the world, limited government. And of course it was followed, and in many other countries the example, the shining example of the United States was followed. And democracy is just a slogan, but limited government is a precise thing. And that was overthrown, and violently overthrown, and these guys, Bernanke and others, and uh, you, you know the names, I don't have to repeat them, are enemies of humanity just the same as Lenin was and Stalin was. Just because they don't have machine guns, well, eventually it will come to, perhaps it will come to that. I don't want to make uh, the, the predictions about that. But the situation is very, very serious, and this is what is happening. It's a, it's a, a coercion being imposed on the world. Gold is the natural money, or the material out of which money is formed, and it has been overthrown by a coup d'etat, by a putsch, that's what it was, and as a consequence the world's population could be pushed into slavery, slavery through paper money, but we haven't seen the worst yet because starvation is still ahead and uh, civil war is still a complete breakdown of law and order and, and uh, this is uh, very unfortunate. So uh, I think I finish here but you see the concept of marginal utility just blossoms and it puts the picture in the right perspective. And, and I think it was necessary to go as far as I did here to point out the bleak future which is threatening us. So, uh, oh, I didn't leave any time, but if there are some quick questions, let's, let's have them. Does anyone have any quick questions? No, okay. Well, the, there will be another chat. Okay. Just one comment, Professor. Thank you for all this. I read a book about the, um, the Ukraine famine. Yeah. A very graphic description of bloated bodies and little babies and people eating each other's babies. And it was the most horrific. I've lived 65 years. It's the most horrific thing I've ever heard about. I would suggest perhaps worse than the, the Nazi thing. 
So that Stalin-induced deliberate starvation, it's the, it's the worst thing in, in my imagination that can possibly you know. That was hell on earth. So you know. if this is where we have to go, then I, I want out of here. Yeah. Yeah. So, what is this book here? Shall we break uh, Yes, yeah. Unless. Oh, the, the it's going to be a big um, black book of communism. Okay. I have a question. Yes, by government. On the initial part of the two curves between the ask and the bid, I mm. mean, the spread is large for small quantities because of transaction costs mostly? Something like that, yeah. Okay. And but and if we said before that um, the marginal utility, um, I mean uh, the price, per, the unit price of a good decreases with quantity. Why does the ask curve slope upward towards the end? Why does this slope upward? Yes, it's because. Um, the guy that sold it to you isn't sure. First of all, that's a very large quantity. The guy that sold it to you is not sure that he will be able to replace what he's given to you. Yeah, at I think if that I price. Interject. The comment the professor made yesterday would have been within that range. The consumer going to the store and buying, you know, uh, 50 pounds of coffee instead of one pound. This is we're talking about in a uh, commercial futures market, for example, where coffee might trade in, in two-ton lots to begin with, but if you want to buy more than 100 tons is where the spread is starting to widen. So this is like three orders of magnitude larger quantities than I think what the professor was talking about yesterday. Is that the way that you're meant to, to trade? You pick up, the bro uh, pick up the broker, you pick up the phone, and you call the broker and you say, give me a quote in a hundred tons. You don't tell him which way you're going to go. Give me a quote. He quotes the spread rather than the price. Yeah, and he quotes a spread in a hundred tons. And he doesn't know which way you're buying or whether you're buying or selling. And then you give your decision. So that's the way you should think about it, basically. And uh, we refine the idea of marketability. We go a little bit beyond Menger himself, because Menger kept talking about what we would call marketability in the large. But on the left, and I don't know if your question referred to that, the, the left uh, well, yeah, no, uh, is marketability in the small. Yeah. And we haven't touched this, but uh, perhaps later in the during the session we will touch this also. Marketability in the small is also known as hoardability. hoardability and there will be a most hoardable good and the most hoardable good leads to the idea of interest. But that's another story. Right here <coughs> we were concentrating on the original idea of Menger. And what's the German word what Menger used? Please, one German word you have to learn absolutely in this session. And this is Absatzfähigkeit. 
right? Could you say it aloud so everybody gets the right pronunciation? Absatzfähigkeit. Aha. Uh -huh. That's it. You write it down. That you must learn. <laughs> what does it mean? A marketability in the large. But uh, just one word, if you say marketability, <coughs> that's what you mean. Absatz. H-I-T-K-E-I-T. Now, I don't know if Menger created that word or that existed already in the German language. I don't know that. But somebody should look into that. Was Menger the first one uh, to use that word or did it already exist before him? Uh, I, I can't answer that question. But that's the one German word, and there are lots of others, 